You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're going to hear from Emily as she chats with Donish Karani, a learning space designer and professor. Together, they'll discuss learning spaces that inspire, and Donish will share more with us about how, what he feels is important in a learning space and why. They'll also discuss learning space failure and how the process of design must really include the people who will be using the space versus just the outcomes you'd want the space to elicit. Let's listen in and learn more. Hi, this is Emily from Getting Smart, and today I'm joined by a learning space architect um, who's going to shed light a little bit on what he's seen across the country and around the world in terms of how we're transforming space so that it's more conducive to the type of learning we want to see from students. Uh, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background? My name is Danish Karani, and I'm trained professionally as an architect and urban designer. I'm currently teaching at the Stanford School of Engineering as well as the Harvard Graduate School of Design. In terms of my background, I've attended school in good environments and bad environments. I've experienced the best of learning spaces and the worst of learning spaces, I would say. And so firsthand, I've seen what a difference it makes to learners like myself who are creative. You know, I went to a high school that was designed very much like a prison. We had interior courtyards, cold cinder blocks, hallways. It was all about control and being able to keep an eye on students constantly. And you compare that to eventually ended up at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, which despite being built decades ago, to this day, I'd say it's still successful at a few things, which is fostering relationships. And it does this just based on how student desks are oriented in the large open hall. Uh, it gives space for both creativity and the traditional classroom learning. And also you're constantly getting inspiration as you walk through the space. It's an open space where you can see what people are working on at all times. It's really worth checking out. So in terms of my background, you know, for the last seven plus years, I've been working with schools and educators around the world to think about how do you get to match up and support the 21st century learning, these new pedagogical models, new ways of teaching and learning. How do you support that? How do you amplify the work that's already being done in schools? And I'll put a plug here. You have a great TED Talk on kind of how you got into education. Uh, we see a lot of uh, school architects who haven't really been in education that come in and try and rethink learning spaces with a school team. And there's some missteps sometimes, if you will, because there's a disconnect between what's going, what goes on in these spaces versus, you know, what an architect can really, it really knows and is able to do. So do you mind shedding light on kind of how the education bent and schools became a part of your work? Well, you know, as an immigrant in this country, first off, you know, a lot of immigrant families, they, they understand the value of education. So that was preached uh to my sister and I at a very early age that education is important in your lives, it's important to our family, it's important for your well-being moving forward. So that's always been a critical part. Um, as I got older, even uh, while I was studying architecture in college, I actually ran a college prep mentoring program for about 1,600 kids, middle school and high school kids across the country, 
uh, helping them prepare for college admissions. So I had a taste of education then. And then while I was um, a scholar at Harvard, I was uh, teaching classes and I've been teaching there since. And so I've got, you know, both the middle school, high school, as well as higher ed. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, when I started my architecture practice, I knew that we wanted to create social good through architecture, using the built environment to improve people's lives. And education seemed like a immediate first place where we wanted to have an impact. And I think part of it is because so much of what we do in this world is reactive. We're re reacting to environmental crises. We're reacting to cultural clashes. We're reacting to so much. In my mind, and obviously people can uh, choose to disagree, but in my mind, education is the most proactive thing that we can do to mitigate problems in the world. And so it seems like an obvious starting point. I love that. And it's incredible, tying it back to learning spaces, how some places of learning actually feel like they're squashing that ideation, that sense of possibility, that proactiveness just even by the physical space, right? It's like you said, some spaces feel like prisons or were designed to keep keep kids in, keep control. Um, so can you describe a little bit uh, about what you referred to, the good, good versus bad, and, and, and what you see in, in places that kind of squash that inspiration and the curiosity and then compare that with places of learning where you really feel like students are thriving? in places you like to see um, um, compared to where it's, you know, dank and, yeah, really designed like a prison. We've seen places like that around the country. We've seen some who've really taken that space and revamped it in their own right and made it a powerful place of learning um, and others that could use some love. So, yeah, shed light on that, the good versus bad. Right. And a lot of schools and administrators are probably asking themselves, well, why should we care about learning spaces in the first place? Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's a question that's on a lot of minds right now. And so for that, I'll give you three reasons. One is currently most schools are not designed to be conducive to education. So all of this investment that we make in professional development, in curriculum, in tech, it's all being undercut by having bad spaces. And so these spaces that aren't conducive, what it means is that kids are spending their time in schools that are suboptimal for learning. So if you think about that, that's 30 hours a week that these kids are being suboptimal. So imagine 75% of your work week if you were suboptimal. That's a big, uh, that's a big factor in, you know, why these schools need to be better. The other thing is, the second thing I would say is, you know, our surroundings matter far more than we give them credit for. And it's hard to see that because it's implicit. So you remember nature versus nurture. Our mm -hmm. environment is constantly nurturing and coerc I would say coercing us to behave and feel a certain way. Right? If, I'm going to say that again. Our, our environment is constantly nurturing and coercing us to behave mm -hmm. and feel a certain way. So if we know this, why not use the environment to our advantage? Why not design environments that are going to make us better people and help us perform better? That's it. That's reason two. And the third reason why we should care is think about 
what percentage of our hard-earned money goes towards taxes that eventually pay for school buildings? It's a lot. Mm. And given how much we spend, shouldn't we be getting this right? So the example I like to give always is, imagine a barista screws up your $5 latte. You'd ask for it to be redone, right? And if we can't accept a bad cup of coffee, how are you going to accept a $50 million building that isn't right? So those three reasons, I'd say, are, are why we should care. In terms of examples, of course, you know, around the world, there are schools and designers that are working together in beautiful ways to, to create incredible learning spaces. I'll, I'll give one example. Uh, it's a space that we designed and built a few years ago in partnership with Google. Uh, it's called the Code Next Lab, and it's in Oakland, California. And the reason... I mentioned this one, Emily, is you, you touched on something a second ago, which was, you know, learning spaces don't always pop up in the same way. And mm-hmm. it's possible to create a space for learning that one doesn't look like we're used to. Two, it doesn't have to be within the structure or uh, a building facility that we're also used to. So this Code Next Lab in Oakland, it's in the Fruitvale neighborhood and it's a retail storefront about 1,400 square foot retail storefront that we converted. And so the reasons that I would say this design is really successful and and the takeaways from this is, first off, you know, with with any design uh, process, I I don't care if you're designing a learning space or uh, something industrial design, you're designing a product, you're designing a process, doesn't matter. You've always got to start with the objectives. Um, You know, so for Google in this Code Next Lab, they had a handful of objectives. One was getting kids, uh, students of color from uh, the neighborhood neighborhoods of Oakland, getting them access to tools, equipment, resources, mentors in computer science and technology. This lab, the, the point of this program in this lab was to really get kids uh, comfortable uh, introducing them to computer science and tech, looking at the tech sector and the lack of diversity. So it was to help build that pipeline and and get Mm -hmm. students both interested and qualified and confident in computer science and tech. So that access piece was really important. Um, The sense of belonging, they wanted students to feel like they belong in the tech sector. You know, a lot of times um, professionals, uh, engineers, coders, of color who work in companies like Google and Facebook and LinkedIn, they often talk about imposter syndrome, right? They look around the office and yeah. no one really looks like them. And so they, they feel out of place. They feel like, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. And so, um, you know, it was to combat that imposter syndrome. So we had to create a sense of belonging. Um, and so uh, the other things that they wanted to do were inspire kids. A lot of kids in these neighborhoods, you know, they, they grow up and they're looking up to LeBron James and Jay-Z and it's, it's cool to be an athlete or be an entertainer. So how do we also uh, show them that it's cool to be a scientist, uh, to be an engineer? And so that was one of the challenges. Of course, the, the confidence, you know, building their confidence in something that's very new to them. And then on top of all of this, they had a constructionist learning model. They wanted kids similar to MIT with the mind in hand motto. They wanted kids to learn by making and doing. So we did a couple of things here. So those were the objectives. That's what we started with. And the reason 
I'm about to explain and, and demonstrate of why we think this is such a successful space. So, uh, first off, sure, you know, and let access. me let me jump in there real quick. I think that it's something that's important to note for um, those listening. The Fruitvale District in in Oakland, there's a bunch of really great schools there. Urban Prom- Promise Academy, where the Facebook platform with Summit Learning is is being used, and some other spaces and some real intentionality, including this space um, that you designed alongside Google to try and really help those um, students get access to those different different types of learning and different careers for sure. So that's really important. And then I was just going to say um, to your point about how the learning space matters, that there's places where when you want to be there, when it looks different, then it makes people want to stay, right? It makes people want to collaborate and connect. And I think of a place that I just was in D.C. It's called the Line Hotel. And I normally when I go to hotels and traveling, it's the last place I want to be, right? You don't want to be at the hotel. <laughs> But the Line Hotel is a converted church. They made little nooks. There's a pu- little nooks for people to do work. There's a public radio station. There's fabulous places to sit and talk, and it doesn't feel like you want to run away, right? And sometimes schools make kids feel like they want to run away and go somewhere else and that their learning is going to happen out in their community or not necessarily at the school. And so I think another reason I'd add to your three was that it, they create senses of collaboration and connection. Um, and, of course, you can have real place-based learning out in the world as well, um, even when you have a fabulous a fabulous learning space. Um, so, anyways, just seconding what you were saying, I wanted to, to jump in there. But continuing with what you were sharing about the, the Google space and the design. Yeah. And so, you know, a couple of things that we did for each of these objectives. So, for example, you know, they wanted students to have access. Well, that's a very easy decision. It, it means don't host your programs, you know, down in Silicon Valley and make these kids come to you. Build this program and and this place in the community so that kids have access to it. They can get there. It's right off the BART station there at Fruitvale and give those kids a place in their community so they don't feel like, you know what, anytime I want something good, I have to leave my neighborhood. My neighborhood doesn't have anything. So it definitely echoes what you're saying about being place-based. the sense of belonging, right? Uh, so if you look at the walls of the computer science lab that we built with them, this, this tech lab, there are figures like Melba Roy. She was one of the human computers that worked with NASA back in the 50s and 60s. There's um, on the walls, there's stories of Guillermo Gonzalez Camarena. He was a Mexican inventor of color television, right? These are stories that in the media, we're constantly hearing about Bill Gates and Elon Musk and, um, you know, folks that look nothing like these kids that are coming out of some of these communities. And there are studies, Emily, that say when you watch a commercial, if the person in the commercial has the same eye color as you, you're more likely to do what they're asking you to do. That call to action uh, becomes that much more powerful and they're able to convert you if they look similar to you just based on eye color, right? So for these kids to be able to see role models and inventors that look like them and came from places like Oakland, that's incredibly uh, inspiring for them. And, Especially you know, so, for women so that, in tech. There's research about, the, about women in tech as well. Absolutely. And so that sense of belonging, right, you, you start to feel, well, look, if they belonged, if they were able to make such an impact and, and they made it, then so can I. 
And then in terms of being inspiring, um, you know, inspiring them to think about engineering, computer science, technology, think about these as potential careers. We had to make computer science and tech relevant for them. That, that was one of the big things. How do we design it, design this place so it shows them the relevance of this? And so to do that, we did a couple of things. We, we have this display, interactive display of video game controllers dating back from the 1980s to now so that they can see that, look, even the way that we play on a day-to-day basis was effective, affected by computer scientists. We've got mm-hmm. displays of Neymar from the Brazilian national soccer team. Um, and it explains how he worked with his soccer ball company and sponsor to embed sensors in the ball so that when he's playing, when he's practicing, he's getting real-time data on his performance. There's also, you know, Beats headphone set, which was taken apart. We've shown the kids, you know, displayed prominently on one of the classroom walls. We're showing them, look, this is what a Beats headphones that you use every day. These are the parts and pieces that go inside of this. And so the kids, when they see that and realize, wow, these are just small parts and pieces that were made. And if I could design one piece, I could probably design and make the next piece. And eventually I could make my own set of headphones. Yeah. Right? And well, so what I also like, like hearing you say is that it's, um, that it's not also just about, you know, sometimes we go to learning spaces and people say, oh, there's fancy chairs that move around on wheels or there's, you know, movable bookcases, and those things are great. But what I love about your work and what I think people really cherish in your work and why they come to you for places like the Black Girls Code Lab, the Khan Academy Lab, the space you're describing in Oakland, is that you also are incorporating who the students are and into the work, into the art, into the design. And sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure you would advocate and say that the furniture and the look and feel matter a lot, but also incorporating who those students are. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, to your point, it goes so much further than furniture. And I've written articles about this ex- explaining why, even if we look at just this notion at the CodeNext Lab of the constructionist learning model, now, how would you really support a constructionist learning model through furniture? You could do a few things mm-hmm. that you could certainly, you know, choose the right tables and chairs and um, storage and equipment, but we went so much further than that. So, for example, in the makerspace side of the CodeNext Lab, we exposed the ceiling. We took away the ceiling tile so kids could see the air ducts, the sprinkler pipes, the electrical wires. They could see everything and understand the guts of the building. We have these huge, beautiful uh, barn doors that divide the space, these sliding doors, and we ended up making them clear, and you could see the wood structure inside. We wanted kids to be able to know okay, you've got a barn door, this is what's actually on the inside. Um, You know, we've got even on on all the windows that we have inside the space, all the windows between rooms and into offices, we've exposed all of the screws that made the windows. So, again, kids can start to see how things are made, get them in the mood, you know, same with the Beats headphones. They start to see how things are made. And so, again, to your point, Emily, like none of this is furniture, it, but that's the thing with environments. You've got to remember that there's so much more. And it's funny because people inherently know this about their homes. Like when you think about your home, 
the way it's designed and you think about your home environment, you're not just thinking about your couch, right? It matters to you how your house smells. You care about how your bed sheets feel, uh, whether you get great sunlight, you know, whether your devices connect to one another, do you have space to store your sporting equipment, you know, do, do I have photographs on the walls that remind me of happy times? Like, you are thinking about so much more, and so that's something we have to remember, even in the context of schools. It's, it's just like at home. You, you care about the totality of the environment. We understand that. So at schools, it's got to be more than just buying new furniture. Sure. Can you come to my house and help me? <laughs> um, I think you're you're tapping into something I'm really curious about, and I alluded to this before, that sometimes you have a disconnect between a design and who the people are, as well as the, the learning model that's at play. And so I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on how you feel the learning model makes a difference in the space and vice versa, uh, especially a constructivist learning model, be it someone working on project-based learning or design thinking, which we see a lot of, um, which is wonderful to see. But could you, could you share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, even uh, take the Code Next Lab that we just talked about, which had a construction, constructionist learning model. It was place-based. It was project-based learning. You know, from that, you know, their version of, let's say, PBL was Okay, it's gotta, we gotta have access. We have to foster a sense of belonging. We need to inspire them. We need to build their confidence. So that is very different. That's, that's their version, let's say, of PBL. And so for us, it's important, even when we talk about learning models or pedagogical approaches, you know, one school that says project-based learning could be very different. Their take on it, their spin, their version of it based on their community and who they're serving is going to look very different. Now, you take that over to Khan Lab School that we designed. For Khan Lab School, also project-based learning. And for them, as a lab school, right, any, any laboratory, of course, what you're doing is you're experimenting. So for them, they're experimenting in new teaching practices, new curriculums. They're sharing that with the broader educational community. And also their independence levels at Khan Lab School, so students aren't grouped by age or grade level. So their version of PBL, you know, leads to very different objectives. And so for us, it's, again, you have to hone in on those objectives. What's the school or learning center? What is the special sauce? What what makes you unique? So, you know, forget these buzzwords for a minute, but let's distill down, you know, what are what are we really trying to achieve here and then design for that? And, you know, if we look at Code Next Lab, again, the, the reason I would say it's quite successful, just, um, you know, within the first two cohorts of students, we went back and, you know, we, we try to always work with our partners to do both qualitative and quantitative studies, right? We want to understand the efficacy of these learning spaces. Did it help you achieve what you wanted to achieve? Did it have that impact? And so I'm just going to rattle off a few things here that I remember even from Code Next. Right. If we were thinking about one of the objectives was provide place-based education for computer science. So when we polled students, 97% of them said that they felt that this lab provided a better space for hands-on learning versus their classrooms at school. Right. We talked about inspiring students, giving them confidence. 80% of the students attributed the lab, the actual space of the lab, 
and said it gives them the confidence to pursue a career in computer science or tech. That's four out of five kids attribute the lab space to giving them confidence that they can pursue a career in tech. And then we had, wow. you know, two out of the three, two out of three students said that the space makes them feel like they can change the world. Right? These are such powerful statements that are all tied back to the design and the design is built on the foundation of those objectives that you had for your program. Yeah, I'd love to have people do a similar survey or conduct similar research on learning spaces that exist now and that they want to change, right? Maybe that data would be powerful in highlighting why they need to change or how they need to change. I think that'd be Mm -hmm. incredible to do. Um, I have two more quick questions for you, um, and I'm going to just ask quickly, tell us about a learning space failure, because I've seen them where someone has designed something (laughs) thinking that it was the Mm -hmm. intended user and intended outcome was such, and then it didn't happen to work that way. So I would love to hear about a learning space failure. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're constantly surprised when we go back to the spaces that we've built, all the incredible nooks and crannies that students find and different ways that they're ending up using the space. We're often you know, we had not intended for that at all. We had, we didn't even imagine that possibility. So it's, it's always great to go back. And, you know, for us, it's not a negative when you go back and someone's using a space in a different way. It actually means that you created a possibility without even realizing it. And someone did realize it at the school and, and they're really pushing that potential of that space. I, I guess in terms of a failure, I mean, a few years ago, we built prototypes for uh, a school district here in the U.S., and I would say the prototypes themselves were highly successful. We, you know, we did workshops. We we went through our typical design process where we engaged students and faculty members, and we got these pro- classroom prototypes built over the summer and tons of positive reviews afterwards. I mean, we had uh, teachers saying, holy crap, like, I can't believe that this is the design that came from our workshops, and we had them telling telling us about students that, you know, were introverts and now all of a sudden are standing up presenting in front of their peers. And so not only did we have these great results, we did all of this at a fraction of the cost that the district normally spends, right? So we were able to do it cheaper, faster, and better, and still the district opted not to adopt our methods. And so I guess the mm-hmm. failure here, I would say, is maybe we needed to do more for them to really, I guess, accept the absurdity of sticking to the old way of building classrooms, right? I would say our failure in that sense was we did some great prototypes, and yet somehow it wasn't adopted district-wide. Right. That failure to, to take it on, maybe on the front end, um, spending some more time there. I, and I asked just because I think, there's realities in thinking that just because you change a space that other things will follow. And so this is a great example of, yeah, there's other things that come along with that. It isn't just the physical space. There's other things that must coincide with those changes and shifts. Um, and the last question I have for you is what are types uh, or of spaces or aspects of spaces that you want to see more of and why? You're obviously kind of on the forefront and, and exploring <laughs> New, you are for sure, and exploring new spaces and seeing what happens when you create these types of spaces. So, would mm-hmm. love to hear 
what you're curious about, what you're seeing, and uh, what you want to see more of. Well, one of them you hit on earlier, which was, you know, we'd love to see more schools recognize that the environment is more than furniture. So, you know, I, I think poor poor principals and educators, they're, they're constantly getting pitched to and marketed to by, you know, these, these fancy furniture companies who say, look, come buy our products and they're going to change the way you do things. And again, furniture is an important ingredient, but it's not the only one, right? So mm-hmm. you're not going to have this amazing, amazing meal with just one ingredient. So, you know, like we said about the analogy of our homes, that total environment. So I think I'd love to see more schools recognizing this and, and thinking holistically about every inch that surrounds our teachers and students. And then, you know, as we're doing this, as as we're designing these total environments, that it would be great for schools the, the same way now in curriculum and, and even, you know, in our uh, activity and lesson planning, teachers are starting to think about different types of learners different profiles of students that we do this in the spaces that we make, right? So imagine when a school has spaces for making things and taking things apart. They have spaces for working alone. They have even spaces for going, you know, for one-on-one talks with mentors. You've got to have this diversity of spaces. It can't just be these homogenous rooms one after another. Not only does that create a dreary experience, but you're also limiting the potential of so many people and you're limiting what your teachers are able to do because you haven't equipped them with the tools. And when I say tools, I mean the environmental tools to do so right. much. So, you know, as school leaders, I always ask them, you know, question yourself honestly and say, do I have a place on campus where each one of my kids feels alive? You know, do I have a place for every single child where that child says, I love it here. I want to spend all of my time here. And and the reality of that is probably not because we're not catering to the full spectrum of student needs. And so I'd love to see schools start doing more of that. Absolutely. I was at Design Tech High, and I looked out the window, and in this little corner nook, there was a student playing his cello outside. And I thought, that's amazing. There's some space that he, he wasn't in a class. He was, he just was playing his cello outside. And I thought that was fabulous. I also think he tapped into what Larry Rosenstock from High Tech High always says is that exposed structures, light and height make a big, big difference. And like you said, make students feel alive or that um, they can come alive in those places of learning. Well, that's great. Um, is there anything else you want to share? Before we um, sign off, other than where we can find, um, we know we can find some of your articles on Getting Smart, um, but then where else we can find you online? Sure. Uh, you can head to our website. It's uh, karani.us, K-U-R-A-N-I.us. And so we've got tons of case studies there. We've got stories of impact. We've got a great blog with resources for educators. You know, it's not always that we have to wait for a grant or a large you know, bond project or a new school, there's there's resources there where educators can start thinking about, you know, what can I do to my classroom? And then, you know, of course, be in touch with us, um, follow us online, be in touch if you need help designing your spaces. We'll, we'd love to, we'd love to check it out and work with you. 
Thanks so much. We appreciate it. I loved getting to hear from Donish and Emily as they shared their predictions on what might be on the horizon for learning spaces. What would you add? Take a moment to really reflect and think about the spaces that you've experienced that inspired you to learn. And to learn more about learning spaces, be sure to check out Three Ways to Design Better Classrooms and Learning Spaces, a blog that Donish published with us on gettingsmart.com. We have it linked in the show notes and on the blog for this episode. You can also find Donish on Twitter at Karani underscore US or online at Karani.us. We've also got that information in the show notes. And one last thing, please be sure to leave us a rating. We love reading your feedback and it helps us improve and bring you more episodes you'd like to hear. That's all for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.